It is wonderful to be here. I have so enjoyed my time at this camp. And I wanted to ask, I'm, I'm going to repeat what has already been said about how great camp is. Uh, I also repeat how great our leadership is uh, here at this camp. I, I, I said this elsewhere that uh, this has got to be, and I'm being taped, so I'm going to say it this way, one of the healthiest districts in, in the country. And it really is. And that has a lot to do with our leadership. How many of you grew up coming to camp? Okay, I'm assuming by that about the same number grew up going to church, right? I'm, I'm the same way. I grew up going to camp, not here in another state. I grew up going to church, and it's because of that, growing up in the Assemblies of God, that it was really the Assemblies of God that taught me how to sin, right? Uh, uh, because I didn't really sin much before I became a Christian. You know, I, I became a Christian as a child. You know, I'm, my testimony was I was hiding milk bottles in the toilet. I was, you know, popping Skittles like they were candy. I didn't have much of a testimony. <laughs> By the way, my theory is this. If it tastes like fruit, it's not candy. But I didn't have much of a testimony. Uh, and, and so I learned a lot of sin from the Assemblies of God. In part, because the Assemblies of God has testimonies. And sometimes people would testify in church about what God had delivered them from. And in their testimony, they could be graphic. And they would explain things. And I would sit there as a child thinking like, I didn't even know someone could do that. (laughs) You know, write that down. I don't even know what that is. I've got to look that up later. (laughs) The assemblies of God taught me how to sin. And I'm saying that to you this morning because this morning we're going to talk about how to disobey God. How to disobey God. Now, some of you in here might already be thinking, I don't need this message. Right? I don't need someone to tell me how to disobey God. I'm already good. I've got that. So I want you to think of this message instead as other ways to disobey God. Whatever you're thinking, I'm going to give you some other ways to disobey God. Up till now, we've been talking about how characters in 1 Samuel teach us what it's like to be the people of God. How through the positive example of Hannah, we see what it means to be a people of prayer. Through the negative example of Eli, we see what it means to be a people of witness. Through the positive example of Samuel, we see what it means to be a people of faith. This morning, we're going to talk about the people of God as a people of obedience, And we're going to look at the negative example of King Saul. King Saul is one of the most tragic figures in the Bible because he starts out with such promise and he ends with such distance from God. Israel has asked for a king. God has said to Samuel, go ahead and give them what they want and I'm going to choose that king for you. And in the very next chapter entering the stage is Saul, a young man who is looking for his donkeys. Now, we don't really know anything about Saul, except that he is missing his donkeys, and as we find in the next chapter, he is head and shoulders above everyone else within Israel. He's tall. He's Israel's giant. How many of you have ever seen a really big guy walk into a room, and you immediately made assumptions about that guy? Right? I have a friend who is six foot eight, and And he's a big six foot eight. He's not a skinny six foot eight. And every time I see him, I have to remember how tall he is. You know, I'll go meet him for a meal and he stands up to greet me. And I'm just like, whoa, you keep standing. You know, it just never ends. (laughs) 
He's the sweetest guy in the world. You don't always know what you're going to get. When I was a pastor in L.A., um, uh, I oversaw for a time the Sunday night service. And I remember there was a day in the evening. We had a guy in our church, really tall, big guy. His name was Vince. Vince was great when he was on his meds. When Vince decided not to take his meds, Vince could be very angry, like a drop of the hat, and could get violent, right? This is Vince. So one Sunday night, I'm in the foyer greeting people. Vince comes walking in, and I can instantly see he's not on his meds. And I'm like, oh my goodness, because I'm also the only pastor on Sunday night. So I'm it. I'm, I'm, I'm our defense team, right? I'm the bouncer. So Vince comes in, big guy, tall and, and solid, solid, tall guy. I decide during service, thankfully I wasn't preaching, we had a guest, so I was able to sit with Vince the entire service. So I sit next to him, I'm going to be there in case there's a problem. There's not a problem, Vince is fine, entire service. We walk out at the end. He's almost to the exit. You know sometimes, okay, maybe you don't know this, sometimes pastors are praying just to get someone through the exit of that church. And we have made it through one Sunday without an incident. Before Vince goes to the, someone just praise God, I love that. Before Vince goes to the exit, something is said that sets him off. And before I realize it, Vince is towering over me, giving me an earful and challenging me. I have a young man in my church, Jose. Jose is a new believer. Jose comes from a very different kind of life in Los Angeles, a life of violence. So Jose comes running over because he sees his pastor in trouble. And Jose, this new believer, he's short, but he is strong. Have you ever seen guys that are short but strong? Right? We once had an arm wrestling competition among the young guys. Uh, Jose beat everybody. Right? He is short, but he is strong. Jose comes running over to, to, you know, he sees his pastor in trouble, and Jose is immediately trying to do, hey, man, how you doing? I'm Jose. Is everything okay? You know, he's trying to, to, to be nice. That doesn't set right with Vince, and Jose's a new believer. In about a minute, Jose's about to lose his temper, and I'm more concerned now for Jose than Vince. Vince is off his meds. Jose's a new believer. So I put my arms around Jose. I'm like, Jose, walk away with me right now. Just walk away with me right now. We start walking away. While we're doing this, another big guy in my church by the name of Paul walks over. Now, I've told this story before, so you might have heard this in a different context. But if, if you don't remember or whatever, I'm going to tell you this story again. Paul, Paul was Russian. Paul's dad had actually been part of the secret police in Russia in, under communism. His dad's job as a member of the secret police was actually to break up churches. So his dad would go into this one town where he lived, where he worked. He would find the churches. He would arrest the people. He would burn the Bibles. And this was his job. His job was to uh, destroy churches. Now here's the problem. His dad kept rearresting the same people, right? Because he would arrest people. They'd be thrown in jail. They'd get out. They'd go right back to church. And it bothered him. Why aren't these people getting the lesson? So his job was to arrest them, burn the Bibles. But one day, when no one was looking on his task force... He decides to slip a Bible in his bag. Because he just wants to see what this is all about. Why are these people acting this way? And how many of you could write the rest of this story for me? He reads the Bible on his own, gives his heart to the Lord. 
embarrasses his wife to no end because he's secret police. He's become a Christian. She wants that Bible out of her house. She's afraid of what it's going to do to her family. She will not read the Bible. Wants nothing to do with it. Knows nothing about the Bible, and that's the way it should be. Paul and her eventually get pregnant, their first child. Paul is excited because he hasn't been able to express his faith yet. He doesn't know how to do that yet. So he basically says to her, I want to give our child a Bible name. It's going to be a boy. We want to give him a Bible name. She is adamant. No, we're hiding the fact that you've become a Christian. We're hiding the fact that you have a Bible. We are not going to give our son a Bible name. She puts her foot down and says, he's not going to be named from someone from the Bible. We're going to name him Paul. Her husband, you win. His name is Pavel. His name is Paul. That's Paul, right? That's the man in my church. Eventually, because of his connections, he's able to actually uh, uh, immigrate to the U.S. with his family, where now they're able to worship God freely. Paul, big Russian guy, comes over to Vince. They're about the same height. So he just puts an arm around his shoulder, leans in, and whispers into Vince's ear for like 20 seconds. Vince's eyes get wide. Vince runs out of the church like a shot right past me. And I look over as I'm still with Jose, and I say, Paul, what did you say to Vince right now? What did you just say to him? And Paul looks at me, and he does something I'd never seen. He's a big, emotionless, expressionless Russian guy. He smiles. Have you ever seen someone who's never smiled before smile and it scares you? (laughs) Paul looks at me and he smiles and he just says, I just told him it was time to go. I'm like, that did not take you 20 seconds, Paul. But thank you, I'm not going to press the issue. I believe you. You never know what you're going to get with a big guy. Saul shows up, and all we know about him are two things. One, he's head and shoulders above everyone else. Two, he loses donkeys. And while that seems kind of funny, he's been picked to be the king of Israel, meaning he's Israel's shepherd. And the first thing we learn about him is he can't keep track of animals. Saul enters the scene. Samuel tells Saul that he wants him to stay behind, and we come to this verse now, 1 Samuel chapter 10, and I'm going to begin reading at verse number 1. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zilzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you sent out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and other skins of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gabeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high places, with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. 
Go out down ahead of me to Gilgal. I'll surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived to Gibeah, a procession of prophets met them. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon them, and he joined them in their prophesying. And all those when they had formerly, who had formerly known him saw him prophesying among the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man who lived there answered, and who is their father? So it became a saying, is Saul also among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went up to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said, but when we found they were not to be found, when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, he assured us the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. So Saul is anointed privately by Samuel. Now, this is something that, again, anointing, I've said this before, is one way of telling someone, I have your back. That whatever you're being consecrated for, whatever you're going to be empowered for, I support you in this. I am anointing you. Samuel is given, or Saul is given by Samuel, various signs. You are going to go towards Gibeah. You're going to meet people on their way to worship. They'll give you a portion of food. You're going to meet prophets who are worshiping. You will receive the Spirit of God. And at that point, you will be a different person. Now, one thing I think is interesting, this is not a part of this message. This is for free. But when Saul receives the Spirit of God, it says that he immediately prophesies. But what's interesting is Saul is not called to be a prophet. He's called to be a king. And sometimes what we see in the Old Testament is that when people receive the Spirit of God, for whatever reason, one of the signs they receive God's Spirit is that they begin to speak out God's Word. Because a sign of the Spirit is speaking. Because of how closely the Spirit is associated with prophecy. You find the same thing in Numbers chapter 11. Moses says to God, I can't handle Israel by myself. God says, I'm going to give the same spirit that's on you to the elders of Israel. The elders show up and it said the spirit came on them. They all ran around the camp prophesying, but they did not do so again. They weren't called to be prophets. They were called to be judges. But the sign they had received the spirit was they could not help but speak the word that God put in their mouth. So Saul receives the spirit of God. Saul begins to prophesy. He finally goes back to his uncle. His uncle says to him, what happened? And Saul does not tell him what had happened with Samuel or with the spirit of God. Now here's the point I want to make about this. And this follows through on the rest of the story, but it's simply this. Inaction can become a form of disobedience. Inaction can become a form of disobedience. If we follow the story through, Samuel brings all of Israel before him. They assemble together to show them who the new king is going to be, and they cast lots. And the way lots might work, there's some theories about this, is that it's like a kind of colored dye, and that you try to get the same color as different people pass to say yes or no, yes or no. And so the tribes pass, and the yes shows up for the tribe of Saul. The clans pass, the yes shows up for the clans of Saul, and eventually the shows up for Saul himself. So where's Saul? Saul is hiding among the baggage. 
Saul doesn't tell anyone what's happened. Saul goes into hiding when they're ready to publicly announce the king. And it isn't until a crisis occurs. When a town in Israel is attacked, Saul is farming. Why? Because no one's ever showed him how to be a king before. He just goes back to what he knows. And he hears that a town in Israel is in trouble. And it says the spirit of the Lord comes on him mightily. He kills his animals. So he destroys his farming resources. He sends a piece of them throughout Israel and says, I'm going to do this to your animals if you don't show up. And he raises an army overnight and they deliver the town. And it's at that moment that all of Israel is able to say, finally, we have a king. Now, I want to say this, is that sometimes in crisis, that's when we get to show what God has empowered us to do. The church in the early period of our history was a church that was persecuted, was a church that was judged. Do you know what one of the sayings was for the church in the early years? People in the Roman world called Christians haters of humanity. That's the way it would be talked about in public. We were haters of humanity. Why were we haters of humanity? Because we would not march in their parades. They would have parades of victory. They would have gladiator battles. They would have all these civic events where inhumanity was on display. And because we would not participate in those, we received the name haters of humanity. So how did we get over that? Plagues happened in Rome. There are two major plagues, one in the 2nd century, one in the 3rd century, the Antonine Plague, the Plague of Cyprian. And the story is told that where people had plagues, here's how typically a plague would happen. So again, you've, you've never lived through a pandemic, just imagine this with me, okay? So a plague would occur, the first people who would recognize the signs of a plague were the doctors. And their response to a plague was to immediately leave town and go out to their country villas, because you can see a plague, but they didn't know how to treat a plague. So they're going to ride it out alone, and so the doctors leave town. So if you're a Roman town and you see all the doctors are leaving town, it's time for you to go on vacation, right? Because you do not want to be there. Then as people started to get more sick, family members would be forced to kick the sick member of the family outside their home. Because again, what do you do in a pandemic? You love the family member, but you don't want to lose the entire family. So I have six kids. One of them has come down with this. I'm sorry, my daughter, but out you go. And they would simply leave them there. So what would the church do? The church would find the people who were left out on the street, and they would bring them food and water because no one else was taking care of them. And here's what the truth is. People die in pandemics, but how many know not everybody dies? And if some people just have food and water, they can actually get better. And sociologists tell us that if you were a pagan living in a city that had a church, your chances of survival during a plague skyrocketed. And if you were a pagan living in a city that did not have a church, your chances of survival during a plague shot back down. When the plague was over, the pagans noticed what had happened. And during crises, they no longer called the church haters of humanity. People joined the church. So my question to us, again, this really is, I'm going off now, but let me just follow this through, is that how many know there are people today who consider us haters of humanity? So a crisis happens 
Are we doing what we can as a church to convince the community how much we love them? Or are we just calling them haters right back? I'm not going to preach about David and Saul and the spears because I'm never going to get to that. Tomorrow's our last day. But when David had spears thrown at him, the one thing he didn't do was pick it up and throw it right back. It's in a crisis that we have the chance to show people what the spirit of God means. And here's the thing. Saul was inactive until the crisis. Church, we have the spirit of God now. God has baptized us in his spirit. He's given us his spirit. And sometimes we don't know what to do with the spirit of God. I love speaking in tongues. I'm going to confess that. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that, Pastor Mark. I love speaking in tongues. I pray in tongues. It's a part of my spiritual life. When I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, I spoke in tongues. But God did not give me his spirit so I could speak in tongues. God gave me his spirit so I could speak to the world. It's not about a prayer language. It's about a missionary language. God gives us the ability to pray to him in tongues, but sometimes we forget what's the point of being baptized in the spirit so you can receive power to be my witnesses. That's the point. Tongues is the sign, but the sign is not the same thing as the point. Rhonda, would you come up here for a minute? Rhonda's finally sitting with me. Now, it's because she's taking care of the nursery. She's serving. That's why. I'm going to show here. This is my beautiful wife, by the way. How many of you, 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 this is my beautiful wife. If you see me holding hands with any other woman, report that to Pastor Mark immediately. This is my wife. My wife has this beautiful, gorgeous ring on her hand. It took us how long to find this ring? Months. Months, okay? We knew we were going to get married. Rhonda wanted the right ring. We went around and around and around. We lived, you know, in L.A. We went to the Joy District. Took us months to find this ring. This ring is the sign that we're married. But Rhonda didn't marry me for the ring. Does that make sense? Now you can sit down, baby. Thank you. I just wanted to show her off. Rhonda didn't marry me for the ring. Rhonda married me for the relationship. The ring is the sign, but the ring wasn't the point. God gives us tongues as a sign, but the tongues aren't the point. God wants us to be empowered by the Spirit so we can be active. And understand, inactivity can become disobedience. Inactivity can become disobedience. Secondly, Saul becomes king. And we come to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul raises up an army to fight the Philistines. Saul has mustered an army. He has 33,000. Out of that, he gets an army of 3,000. That's a standing army. But he has to call for a larger force because the Philistines gather. They go to Gilgal where they are going to begin their attack. We're told the Philistines had an overwhelming force, that they had 3,000 chariots. Again, Saul has a standing army of 3,000. They have as many chariots as he has men in his regular army. They have 6,000 charioteers. They have more men than you can count. 
So Saul has to call all the people of Israel together, and Samuel has told him, do not start the battle until you sacrifice to God, and you wait for me to offer the sacrifice. I'm the prophet. Day one, no Samuel. Day two, no Samuel. Day three, no Samuel. Day four, no Samuel. Now, I've never been in battle. I've been shot at, but I was a pastor in L.A. I've never been in battle, right? And what I've heard from soldiers in my church is that sometimes the worst part of the battle is the waiting before the attack begins. Men get tired of waiting, and they start to walk away. Saul is facing a larger force than he has, and his people are leaving, and he hasn't offered the sacrifice. Day five, day six, day seven. Finally, he offers the sacrifice to God. And this is where we come, 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning here at verse number 8. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and fellowship offerings. And Saul offered the burnt offering, just as he finished making the offering. Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had... He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now in this story, Samuel or Saul is losing people left and right. Samuel has not arrived. He's got to go into battle and the sacrifice hasn't been offered. How many of you are starting to feel sympathy for Saul? You're king. You got to go to war. What are you going to do? right? In defense of Saul, what are you going to do? Here's the problem with what Saul did. If I tell you that Saul started out with 33,000 men and he ended up with 600 men, who does that remind you of? Gideon. Yeah, you went to camp. Gideon. Gideon went down to 300. Yet was God able to deliver Israel with 300? Would God be able to deliver Israel with 600? So on the one hand, Saul is afraid that it's not enough for God. But on the other hand, and this is a big one, Saul is just the king. He's not the prophet. He's not the priest. He's just the king. Here's the problem. God has defined roles for leadership in Israel so that no one can take the place of God. The priest has his part. The prophet has his part. The king has his part. An analogy would simply be this. How many of you know the U.S. Constitution sets limits on the power of the president? But the U.S. Constitution also tells us what the presidency is. The power of the president comes from the Constitution, but the same thing that makes the presidency possible is the same thing that limits it. The same thing that made Saul king, the same one, is the same one who limits his power. And if Saul steps out of those boundaries because he could not trust God to deliver with the men he had left, and he takes on the role of prophet or priest, 
What's the next king going to take the role on? What's the next king going to take the role on? What's the next king going to take the role on? And pretty soon, you don't have a king in Israel. You have a Pharaoh in Egypt who represents God entirely. God will not let his people look like a pagan people. He will not let his king act like a pagan king. And Saul has crossed that boundary. So Samuel arrives. I love this verse. This is a verse I give to my son all the time. What have you done? That's the verse. How many of you know you were quoting scripture? What have you done? And what does Samuel do? He immediately starts to blame. The people, the people were leaving. You, you, you hadn't arrived in time. The, the Philistines, the Philistines were gathering. In fact, one commentator believes when he ends by saying, and I had not offered the Lord a sacrifice, what he was really saying was, and the Lord was requiring this of me. It's the people's fault. It's your fault. It's the Philistines' fault. It's God's fault. It's everybody's fault but mine. Here's the next lesson I want to give you. Blaming can become disobedience. Inaction can become disobedience, but blaming can also become disobedience. Now understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that everything goes wrong and you're responsible for it. I'm not saying that the worst thing that happens is your fault. I'm not saying that people don't sin against you. But I am saying that refusing to take responsibility for the wrongs we have done is another form of disobedience. Here's a secret to life that you probably know. I have students, and I will say this to my classes, because sometimes I've been like, students are like, I've never thought of that before. We are so interconnected as a people that almost anything you do wrong, you can always find someone else to blame. We are so interconnected as a people. Almost anything you do wrong, you can almost always find someone else to blame. How many in here are married? You have a ready-made person to blame, (laughs) right? Because you live with anyone with children? Oh, there you go then. Anyone have parents? Oh, yeah, it's their fault. Anyone have coworkers? Don't get me started. Right? We are so interconnected. If that person had just done this differently, if that person hadn't said it to me this way, if that person had responded here, if that person had, if that person had, if the other people around me had given me the circumstances I wanted, then I wouldn't have done wrong. How many have ever thought that? How many know that's blaming? When we don't take responsibility for our own actions. Not everything that goes wrong is our fault. But the problem with blame, when it is our fault, is that by blaming, we give ourselves permission not to change. By blaming, I give myself permission not to change. Our starting position cannot be to justify ourselves. Can I say that again? Our starting position cannot be to justify ourselves. 
Because when that happens, we automatically start to divide people into groups of these are the people to blame and these are the people to not. And here's how the human mind works. Even as I'm saying this to you, someone in here right now was thinking, wow, I know someone else that needs to hear this. (laughs) He's talking about that other group. No, I'm not. I'm talking about us. And here's the thing. I'm talking about me. We can't start by trying to justify ourselves. Sometimes when I teach on righteousness, in fact, well, let me just say this. Blame can be as much the opposite of repentance because it's just another form of denial. Blame can be as much as denial, the opposite of repentance, because it's just another form of denial. Repentance says, it's my fault. Blame says, it's someone else's fault. And do you realize that blame is just another form of hiding? Blame is just another form of hiding. Sometimes when I teach on righteousness, and I'll try to explain this to students or to churches, and I might have even done this here the last time I was at camp, but I will have people do this, because I'm like, when God declares us righteous, in one sense, he's saying, you're right with me. How many of you ever been in an argument with someone, and halfway through the argument, they looked at you and they said, you know what? You're right. I've never had that happen to you. How many of you know that when someone tells you you're right, it's one of the best feelings in the world? <laughs> My wife says to me, you're right, and I'm like, we're going for ice cream. I am right. <laughs> it is a Denny's night tonight. I'm right, right? I love that. You know what one of the worst feelings in the world is? To be in an argument with someone, and halfway through the argument, you suddenly see their point and realize you're wrong. Have ever had that happen? And when that happens, you got a choice. And the choice is, one, you can either shift the argument to be about something else you are right on so that you don't have to admit you were wrong. Well, I know that, but this, right? Or you can adult up and say, you know what? I was wrong. You were right. And so sometimes to illustrate how great this is, here's what I'll say. I'll say to people, look at the person sitting next to you right now. And I'm going to say this. Look at the person sitting next to you right now and just say to them, you're right. Rhonda, you're right. How many of you says, I know it was a game, but it felt good? Once I was preaching this in a church, and I said, look at the person next to you and say, you're right. And I had on the third row, a wife look at her husband, look back up at me, and she went. She wouldn't participate. I don't know what was going on that morning, but she wouldn't participate. Here's the thing. We have to learn how to accept when we're wrong. And I want to ask you, not just when's the last time you've told someone you were right, but when was the last time someone showed you you were wrong? I want you to think about this. When was the last time in your life, not you on your own, by yourself, in your room, thinking it over, but you actually had someone show you you were wrong. Because how many in here don't think you're perfect? How many in here think you've been wrong a lot? So if it's been a year or two since someone has shown you that you were wrong, you've got to ask the question of whether or not you're paying attention. You've got to ask the question of whether or not you're listening. 
if it's been that long before you have learned that you were wrong. Because blame can become a form of disobedience. And then we come to our last chapter here. 1 Samuel chapter 15. And I'm going to begin reading here at verse number 10. Samuel is told by God. Now, now let me say this before I get that. Pastor Mark, Dr. Mark, phenomenal. By the way, phenomenal message these last few nights. I don't know the last time it is I've heard someone preach on hell. But the night before, he preached on Jonathan. Jonathan becomes a character in this story in between the passages I'm reading because Saul, the longer he is king, becomes more hesitant to put his own position at risk and it's Jonathan who starts taking control. It's Jonathan who starts looking like a king and as you're reading this story, you start thinking to yourself, man, I can't wait for Saul to die and Jonathan to become king. So in the midst of all of this, God says to Samuel, tell Jonathan, tell Saul, that I want him to destroy the Amalekites because of the times they have attempted to destroy Israel. This is their time of judgment. He's told to destroy them completely. But instead what happens is Saul saves the king and he saves the animals. And you're like, well, why? Well, one, saving the king is kind of like a professional courtesy because if I save the king of the opposing force I've killed, what do you hope is going to happen if you're the one who's defeated? They'll save you. The reason he takes the animals is because it's the spoils of war. He can pass out the animals to his men. They can use them for various things. It's a way of saying thank you. You're like, that's perfectly reasonable. That's what all kings do. Why is it a problem that Saul does it? And the problem is this. God was calling Israel to judge. He was going to be God's judgment. They were going to be God's judgment for what the Amalekites had done. But by sparing their king and saving the animals, they had turned it from a war of judgment into a war of plunder. It didn't look like God was judging the Amalekites. What it looked like was the Israelites were simply benefiting off the Amalekites. They were looking like every other people. And this is what God says to Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning at verse number 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes... Did I not, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agog their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from plunder. But the best of what was devoted to the God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. 
But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To listen, to heed, is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Here's what happened in chapter 13. Saul was told, your family line will not be on the throne forever. That was the punishment. Saul had crossed a boundary. Saul had taken what did not belong to him. And God was not going to let that continue through the generations. We know it's from the kingship of Israel that the Messiah comes. So in chapter 13, what Saul lost was he lost the chance for the Messiah to be one of his descendants. That's what would have happened. Jesus would have come from his house. But now in chapter 15, God says, I'm not even going to wait anymore. I'm going to take the kingship from you, Saul. Not just from your family, I'm taking it from you. We've already read about Jonathan and how great a king Jonathan is going to be. And in this moment, Saul doesn't just lose out, but Jonathan loses out. And here's a point I want to make real quick. When we are not obedient to God, we could end up sacrificing the next generation. When we're not obedient to God, it's not just us who miss out. We can end up sacrificing the next generation to being a part of God's purposes and plans. God says to Saul, you will no longer serve me as king. Saul says to Samuel, look, I've done what the Lord wanted. I just kept a few things for myself. But the word of the Lord is simply this. And this is a hard word for us. I regret that I made Saul king. How many know there's one other time in the Bible when God says, I regret? It's in the flood story. And here's the thing that I want to highlight. He says, I regret what humanity has become, what I've done with creation. I think they're the same reason. Humanity was created as the image of God, which means we represent God's authority to the rest of creation. By the time we get to the flood story, it says that those of us who are representatives of God's authority have filled the world with violence. In other words, we were the ones destroying God's creation. God isn't punishing us through the flood. He's actually saving the rest of creation from us. And he says, I regret that I made these people my representatives. What is he saying about King Saul? I regret that I've made this man my representative. I'm Israel's king. I want a king who will be a reflection of me, who will have my heart. And I now know that Saul is not it. What was Saul's sin here? I said inaction can become disobedience. I said blaming can become disobedience. The problem I want to highlight here, and this is our last point, is this. Sacrifice can become disobedience. Sacrifice can become disobedience. Saul says to Samuel, look, I wanted to give God a sacrifice. I know he told me to kill all the animals, but I wanted to give him a sacrifice. What does Saul say, Samuel say? To listen and obey is better than sacrifice. By the way, I've said this every, every day, that there's a word of the day. For Hannah, the word was asked. It shows up a lot in Hebrew. For Eli, the word was 
Say it again. Call. Thank you. I actually forgot for a second. For Samuel, the word was a symbol. You know what the word of the day is in this passage? It's listen. Verse 1, I didn't read this, says this. I anointed king, Saul king, so that he might listen. Samuel says back to Saul, to listen is better than the offering of rams. How many of you have children who, listen, who hear you, but they don't always listen? Do you know your kids are hearing you? How do you know? Because we're in the same room, right? But how do you know they don't listen to you? Because they don't obey. Listening is connected to obedience. If he doesn't listen, it means he's not going to obey. Sometimes as believers, we replace listening to God with sacrifice for God. Sometimes we replace listening to God with sacrifice for God. Sometimes we focus on sacrifice in place of what God is calling us to do because sacrifice seems more worthwhile to us than obedience. How many know there are people in the church who are giving faithfully in tithe so that they don't have to give God their time? God may be calling them to something else and their response is, yes, Lord, but look how much I'm going to give you. And that scenario, sacrifice has replaced obedience. How many know that there are sometimes ministers who throw themselves into the work of the church, but they're not throwing themselves into the work of parenting? And that ministry is now replacing obedience. Uh, when I, I had a chance uh, a number of years ago, actually right after I graduated college, I had a chance to go to India uh, to work for a time at the Mission of Mercy uh, that was founded by Mark and Holda Buntain, two of the greatest missionaries in the Assembly of God history. Holda Buntain just passed away this last week. Uh, and while I was there, we were doing a youth camp uh, for all the kids in that region of India. And so we filled up uh, this massive church and we did all, I mean, we just handled the whole youth camp. Uh, they asked us towards the end if we would like to meet Mother Teresa. Now, how many know who I'm talking about when I talk about Mother Teresa? Okay, one of, probably at the time that she was, uh, so a few years before she died, probably the most famous person in the world was Mother Teresa. Kind of the icon of anyone would say she's a saint, it would be Mother Teresa. Hindus love to visit Mother Teresa because they thought she was a saint. So they said Mother Teresa every week has an audience for about 30 minutes or whoever wants to see her who's volunteering in Calcutta, we could put you on the list. We're like, yes, we would love to meet Mother Teresa. So they brought us to this open-air convent, Sisters of Charity, and they were going to have us meet with Mother Teresa. There were about 10 of us in the group. Someone who was Hindu had simply kind of joined our group, so now there's 11. They brought us right to her room, and her room was like this. This was an open-air convent. It was, you know, concrete blocks, so the rooms were sealed in, but the rest of it was open air. Her room was simply a concrete block, like little cell, it didn't have a door. What it had was a paper-thin curtain across the doorway, and someone had written in pencil the word private and paper-clipped it on a scrap of paper to the curtain. That's her room. So we stand by her room, by the curtain. She comes out to see us. She's this little Albanian nun uh, about this tall. 
I mean, I was surprised at just how short she is. And I have to say, I immediately peeked behind her, because how many would want to know how does Mother Teresa live? Right? I looked behind her. In her room, she had an Xbox. No, no, she didn't. In her room, she had like a little table with a Bible, and she had like a little army cot. That was her room. She comes out. She looks at us. And she says, there's too many people here. You know, she wasn't expecting this large group. She said, we don't have enough places to sit. Now, I had just come around the corner, and I had just seen a bench that wasn't attached to anything around the corner. And wanting to be helpful, I immediately jumped up and said, oh, I'll grab that bench. And I ran around the corner. I grabbed it. I put it down. She jerked it out of my hands. She said, not here, there. She slapped it down with a slam. She pointed her finger at me, and she goes, sit. Do you know what I had done? I was a guest. Oh, no, I said. Yeah, you better believe I said. I was a guest in her house, and I immediately took on the role of host. That wasn't my bench. That was her bench. I'm an American, like, 21-year-old kid, right, who decided to walk into her house and decide I would set the terms of how this meeting was going to go. She told me to sit down. So yes, I have been yelled at by Mother Teresa. (laughs) I'm very proud of that. She's the world saint and she yelled at me. How many of you know sometimes God might be telling us to sit down? That we're in a relationship with God and we want to set the terms of it. Sometimes that's why we sacrifice. Because when we're offering God what we want to offer, we're the ones in control of that, right? I'm giving you what I can control rather than just obeying because when I obey, now you're the one in control. I don't want to do that. I want to give you this great, grand, beautiful gesture. How many know that, and I'm going to keep picking on my wife because she's right here, that if I'm in an argument in my wife... The answer might not be just to buy her more stuff. The answer might be to listen to what she's saying. How many know that? Right? The answer to God might not be just do more stuff for him. The answer might be just listen to what he's saying. Don't let sacrifice become a replacement for obedience. And above all, don't let sacrifice become a price for obedience. You know what we do sometimes? Now, this may not be you. This may just be me. But sometimes I think I've done so much good for God, I have somehow bought permission to do a little bad. Right? That look at all these I've done. Look at how I've cared for these people. Look at all the places I've preached. Look at all, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Surely this thing is mine. Have you ever felt that way? You kind of got this ledger in your life, and here's all the good, and here's just a little bad. And I feel like that if I do enough good, I'm somehow buying the price of being disobedient. Because you might even pray this, but God, it's just one area. It's just one thing. I know I failed this one child, but I have four more. I'm doing good for them. Can I just get away with this? Sacrifice is not a replacement for obedience. Sacrifice is also not a price for disobedience. In fact, you know what the price is for disobedience? 
It's death. And Jesus Christ already paid that for us. We don't have to live in disobedience to God. So as I close in a word of prayer, I simply want to pray for this. I want us to pray to listen and obey. To listen and obey. And I almost feel like, someone asked me, the worship team, what, what should we sing or what should we do? And I almost felt like, I don't even know if I want to end this sermon in prayer. I just want to tell you, you know what to do, just do it. You already know this. You got this. Just do it. Don't be inactive when God has given you his spirit to do whatever God has called you to do. Don't be blaming and use that as a way of not changing, of giving yourself permission to not grow, making it someone else's fault and someone else's responsibility. And never let sacrifice become your replacement for obedience. Because not only will you be disobeying God, but a lot of people won't look at your disobedience. They'll just see the sacrifice and they'll start treating you as the example you really aren't. And you could lead them astray. Listen and obey. And if this morning what you need to do is repent, that's the prayer I want to lead you in. Father, I want to thank you that you are a God who never gives up on us. Lord, you are a God of love. You are a God of justice. You are a God of mercy. You are a God of grace. All of those things remain true for you. And Lord, your people have sinned against you again and again and again. From the Garden of Eden to Lake Geneva, your people have not always done what you have asked. Lord, I'm asking that you would forgive us. Lord, if there's anything you're bringing to people's minds that's on their heart now that you're calling them to repent of, to no longer blame for, to get up and move and no longer stay inactive, whatever it may be, God, we repent of that now. We're not just saying that we wish we hadn't done it. What we're saying is we never want to be like this again. Let us be the people you've called us to be. And Lord, from this point on, we dedicate ourselves to listening to you so that you will receive our obedience because we know that whatever is for your glory is for our good, and we have faith in that. In Jesus' name, amen.